advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Dr. Doreen grand is the... Dr. Doreen is an expert in autism. Doreen grand Dr. grand Dr. Doreen grand Dr. Doreen grand is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Good morning and welcome <laughs> to Ask Dr. Doreen. I'm here with Dr. Doreen grand Good morning, everyone. <laughs> I'm trying to be better about letting you say something before we're eight minutes into the show. That was amazing. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm Shannon Penrod, and this is like my favorite hour of the week because we get to spend this hour with Dr. Doreen Grampiche, who is a true expert in the field of autism. She is here with us live. It is Tuesday. It is the 12th of April. Dr. Grampiche just celebrated a birthday. And I loved seeing all the messages that you guys sent my way. And I know some of you sent them her way. And I hope you had a wonderful birthday. Thank you so much, Shannon. It was awesome. And I did get to see all the beautiful posts on your Facebook. And I thanked everyone. Thank you so much. It was such a lovely, uh, just wonderful day, relaxing. And I got so many old, uh, like people from you know, 30, 40 years ago, reaching out, which was awesome. It was beautiful. Well, you deserve uh, all the best things because Thank you've given you. so many of us all the best things, which is opportunities to be ourselves and to connect with loved ones that we have on the spectrum. So I don't think there's anything, any more beautiful gift than that. Certainly in my life, there hasn't been. So uh, it was great to celebrate you. We celebrate you the whole month of April. Uh, <laughs> it's, so, it's so apropos that you were born in the month of April. We are commemorating and celebrating this month, whatever a word people like, whether it's April, whether it's autism awareness, autism acceptance, autism action, autism allies, uh, actually autistic. We're celebrating all of the A words this month. And Dr. Grampiche, we're throwing in some D's in there, uh, D's and G's. So uh, anyway, we are live right now and the chat is open and people are already starting to write into the chat. We do have some questions that have come in as well, but I'm already saying that I, I, I'm getting so far ahead of myself. I just want to say we are live on a bunch of different platforms. You can be writing in on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or about a dozen other sites that Traven will run through for us, the fabulous Traven, who is working so hard right now on so many things. He is juggling more, more flaming bowling balls than one person should have to juggle, but he's doing a great job. Because um, as you guys know, we are in the process of moving into the new studio and it's super, super fun. And it's I say good. that with quotation marks. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we got, we got a lot going on, but Traven's showing you all the ways that you can watch what we have going on. We'll try to sprinkle in some of the things that we have going on throughout the show to give you guys news. But right now we want to get down to the business of you guys asking Dr. Grampiche questions. She is a true expert in the field of autism, but there is no expert in this format that can give you individually specific advice, right? I think we all get that. That would be a disservice to the, to the needing the advice. 
But having said that, there are a lot of things that if you give very specific information to Dr. Grampy Shea, she can tell you different questions that you might be asking the experts, give you different ways of looking at it, which I super, super duper love. Uh, so having said all of that, mm-hmm. Renee and Elvira have said, uh, good morning. How's the weather in Southern California? I don't know about where you are, Dr. Grampy Shea, but it is very cold and very windy where I am this morning. Oh, really? Oh, it's beautiful here. (laughs) I'm in in Woodland Hills, which is Southern California, of course, but it is gorgeous. Sun out, very little wind. It's beautiful. Oh my goodness. Well, I live way down in the, way down in the Valley Valley. And, um, and they say that they're, they're from the Central Valley and it's very windy, windy and we've been stuck indoors. It is so windy here. And I live on a street. I always, when I was a child, because I was born in Puerto Rico and we would look at the pictures from where I was born and it was those very tall palm trees. And so I always wanted to live where there were very tall palm trees. And I now live on a street where there are very tall palm palm trees. I will never do this again in my life um, because the wind comes and it's like a warfare because it comes through those trees and they, it makes this very eerie sound. And then the fronds come crashing down at you at like 40 miles an hour, scare you to death, land on your car, come close to hitting your pets. I will never live on a palm tree line street again, but so it's very eerie and the house makes noises because the palm fronds are hitting us and they just come out of nowhere. There's a cracking sound that sounds like lightning and then they come flying at you. It's uh, it's intense. And we've had a couple of days of that. And it is cold, cold, cold where I am. But uh, I'm glad it's not where you are, Dr. Rebuchet. Ka says, good morning. My favorite day of the week. I just love you guys. We love you back, Ka. Dark Angel, hello, everyone. Uh, And we haven't seen you in a while, Dark Angel. I'm glad you're here. Amanda is here with her blue hearts. Dark Angel said, my son has HPHPA bacteria. And my family doctor and his pediatrician refused to prescribe antibiotic. Why? Because I did a second OAT, OAT, with Great Plains Lab. What do I do? My son regressed into autism. A couple of things. Um, I, it's possible that your family doctor does not consider the organic acid metabolite test, the OAT test, to be um, uh, valid enough to establish that your son does have HPHPA bacteria. That's one possibility, I don't know. You can talk to uh, the Great Plains folks and see what they recommend. But the second thing is that generally speaking, you're looking at with HPHPA bacteria, that means clostridia, which means more antifungal medication and not necessarily an antibiotic initially. So. Uh, I think you need to go beyond your family doctor. This is not normal stuff that family doctors deal with. Uh, You should probably go online and look at the uh, website for, um, what is, uh, Shannon, what is uh, Dan's website? Maps, uh, map doc, yeah, there you go, MedMaps. WMedMaps.org. Dan Rosignol is one of the doctors and he started that organization. And that's where all of the uh, physicians who are kind of trained on this side of of dealing with, uh, you know, issues that are very relevant to our kids. uh, But a lot of family physicians are not really educated in this area. 
So I would really recommend that you go on MedMaps, find a doctor that's close to you. They will accept the oat uh, test from Great Plains and they will uh, treat your child appropriately. And it will most likely uh, start with antifungal and probiotic treatment. But, you know, we'll let the physicians discuss that with you. Yeah, and I, I'm sorry, I was typing uh, as you were saying it. I knew you were going to want that, and I was typing. But um, yeah, medmaps.org, and on there you'll see a bunch of different med... You... And you're frozen, Shannon. So yeah, I think it would... There you are, you're back. Okay. It used to be so hard because uh, you might find the MedMap doctor that you wanted, and I'm gone again. No, no, you're here. Uh, I'm you here. Okay. Yeah. My internet. Uh, we're almost done with this, but the wind keeps knocking it out. Uh, so MedMap doctors used to be that, uh, say, for instance, there was a doctor in Florida that you wanted to go to, but you lived in Seattle and it would be really difficult and you would have to go um, to Florida. But one of the things that the pandemic gave us was the ability to do a lot of te uh, telehealth medicine from different states. Hmm. So there's more of an right now. If you went to do MedMaps before and couldn't do it, there's more of an opportunity. More and more of the doctors are doing telemedicine where you have, a, you have a practitioner near you that they sort of pair up with, whether it's your pediatrician or your uh, naturopath or, who, or whoever. So make sure that you talk to them about the possibility of that because it's more affordable now than it ever was because before you had to do all the traveling as well. So uh, and, they will, and, and just yeah. to kind of let you know when they do prescribe for you, when the physician prescribes and it might be a certain type of uh, antibiotic that deals with clostridia, it's not the typical antibiotic. The typical antibiotic that your child may have been exposed to for throat or other issues is going to make things worse. So it's really important to go to the right physician because they will give you the right type of medication and also will give you lots and lots of probiotics because at this point you need to replace healthy bacteria as well. And yes, it is, it is possible to, to treat this, absolutely. It takes a little bit of time. It's not like a 10-day course. It's more like a six-month thing, but it's not, a, it's not impossible at all. And, and don't give up and, and don't be sad about it. I know it's good that you've discovered what's going on that's super important that's like step one and you know sometimes a lot of times a lot of parents they see the symptoms they don't know what's going on so you've passed that point and you've seen the blood test uh or the urine test that that shows what is going on so now the treatment will be very effective wonderful wonderful and um Amanda said, I just found a couple of good functional medicine doctors. They're taking new patients and they do telehealth. And that's, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. Also um, saying hello to Kathy and to Lynn and Renee and Elvira asked if I speak Spanish and uh, because I was born in Puerto Rico and un poquito. I, oddly enough, I actually majored in Spanish in high school. Um, and then I, I did, uh, I took some more Spanish classes in college and then I didn't, I, I needed to go to a country where they only spoke Spanish for six months to solidify it. And I did not do that. So I, I know just enough Spanish. I can hear and understand it and I can read it fairly well, but to speak it, I'm hopeless anymore, which is sad. Um, but, uh, enough that I can, enough that I can get in trouble. 
That's how old were you? How old were you when you left Puerto Rico? I was less than two. Yeah, I was like a year and a half. So I, I wasn't at a point where um, where it was going to sink in that way. But I spent a lot of time studying the language because I felt that it was important to know. But uh, anyway, the teaching lady says, uh, we saw an integrative pediatrician who helped our little guy clean up bacteria. He is now talking more than ever before. Love, 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 love that. Uh, okay, I want to get to a question because I always say when you write in on our homepage, autism-live.com, there is a chat there and I do monitor those and we can't always get good hi to Brian. Uh, we can't always get to the questions, but if you're persistent, I will see that you have written in many times. And this parent has written in many times and they get more specific each time. Hi, Doreen. My son is four years old, attending 34 hours of center-based ABA therapy. His main concern is stimming. And we ask his consultant about it in every meeting, but she is not talking about knowing the function or replacing it. She simply says autistic people stim because they feel good and they are working with cool body and doing stress management, but I, I don't see any. And also when I ask, will he catch up with his peers? They say they can't guarantee that and they can only teach him skills needed. I feel very motivated seeing your recovery videos and I don't want to give up either. I'm, uh, am I wanting too much? Uh, I mean, getting recovery for my son. And they said, please help me. There's so much there. Yeah, um, there's a so lot there. I, I want to hear from you. Let's unpack all of that. So yeah. <sighs> it disturbs me when a behavior analyst has that kind of an answer. So let's talk about stimming. Um, it is true that generally speaking, the field uh, all, all fields involved with autism treatment know very little about why our children do self-stimulatory behaviors. So let's talk about those for a minute. Um, from a behavioral perspective, as ABA perspective, uh, they call, you know, when we talk about doing a functional behavior analysis or assessment, uh, the function of stimming is believed to be what they just label it internal. So that means that the child is receiving some form of reward or reinforcement or satisfaction from doing the self-stimulatory behavior. Obviously, there is some, some reason that the child is doing that. Uh, from all other perspectives, there are different beliefs in regards to the different types of self-stimulatory behavior. For example, if it's a visual self-stimulatory behavior like children who will gaze from the corner of their eyes or do various things with visual sensory, uh, a lot of people believe that it has to do with just their senses and how they are receiving information visually. A lot of children also will do this kind of thing where they will play with the noise or sound that's coming in, that could also be a sensory issue. In my opinion, and, and a lot of the actual uh, various hand and like, you know, touching, there are lots of kids who touch hair, they like to touch skin, they like to touch sand, water, and look at it. Those are all pretty sensory input focused, right? 
But we don't know more than that. Unfortunately, nobody really understands or knows kind of what is the self-stimulatory behavior accomplishing. I do want to just give you a couple of things that I learned over the years, which are interesting in regards to self-stimulatory behavior. Um, for example, one of the things that I find very fast, and of course, Temple Grand and Shannon often talks about how you see things in, in boxes or in pictures and, and they don't flow together. And that could possibly also explain a lot of kind of the visual types of stuff. In other words, the child is trying to do these things in order to better receive information, better receive visual information. And uh, there are also uh, recovered children or adults now who have told me that the things they heard were like, for, uh, you know, background noise. And they heard a lot of different sounds that perhaps we don't hear. But so it was very hard for them to focus on things that we consider to be foreground, like uh, language. So they have a very hard time focusing on the appropriate sounds. We know that our children hear things we don't hear, like for instance, uh, the sound of, of types of lights or lamps or light bulbs. And those types of things interfere with their learning. So all of just putting yourself in those kinds of situations, you can see that you might develop behaviors that allow you to eliminate that background noise, for instance, and try to focus on what's going on. So there could be, it is possible that some of the self-stimulatory behavior is there in order for the child to try to understand better what's going on around them. That's one possibility. Another possibility, which I do, which I have seen, is that some of the self-stimulatory behavior is simply there to reduce pain. Uh, and I've seen that with children who are, uh, for instance, putting an object or a couch or a countertop against their abdomen and doing this kind of motion to press forward on it. Obviously, if any of you ever have a stomach ache, you're going to put something and put pressure on it. Um, there's also a lot of literature on the fact that this movement itself, forward and backward, uh, activates the parasympathetic part of the autonomous, uh, autonomic nervous system, and it's very soothing. It's extremely calming. That's why we have rocking chairs, for instance. So there's a lot of different things that could be leading to self-stimulatory behavior. We don't. We never say it's just part of autism. I hate that. That just drives me nuts because. On the other side, there's physicians who will say things like, oh, you know, yeah, he has diarrhea 10 times. That's just part of autism. And that is terrible because that means ignore it. No, and we don't ignore anything. We break it down and we treat it one at a time, right? So with self-stimulatory behavior, this is the way I look at it. There's, we all have self-stimulatory behaviors, by the way, we all do, every single person from whether it's people who are like doing this, that's a self-stimulatory type of behavior, or if it's people who are like tapping their pen all the time or whatever it might be, right? Um, so as if it, the behavior uh, is taking away from the individual's ability to pay attention and learn, that's the key to when you have to change it. So if the person is like doing these things, but it's really not interfering in any way with them being aware of what's going on around them and so on, then 
no worries, leave it alone. But if it is really interfering with, and I can say that with our kids, often it becomes obsessive in nature and it starts to really interfere with how they receive information. If that is the case, then you need to replace it. You need to block it and replace it, block it and replace it. It doesn't matter what the behavior or the function is at this point. You need to block it and replace it. Now, it is important. Like I will say I had a child who used to uh, spit at people. That was one of his behaviors, he used to spit. Now, at, at objects that people he used to do it all the time. And it was considered like the family and everyone had identified this as a very challenging behavior. And they thought that it's an aggressive type of like, it's a, you know, he's trying to say, leave me alone. I don't want to do this. It's like a escape type behavior. But you know what? Actually, we learned over time that he, the reason he used to spit was that he enjoyed looking at the angle of the spit. If you can imagine that, none of us would ever think of something like that because we also can't see that, right? So our vision it doesn't allow us to see things like that. Um, but kids with autism, some of them do. And so it's very complicated and you have to really uh, try to figure out what the child is getting out of it because when you replace it with something that's more adaptive, it has to fulfill the same need in that sense, you know? So like with that child, for instance, we started to actually give him other visual types of things that were similar so that he would replace it with various types of like, you know, games or toys or these things that you can look through, which would give him the visual stimulation, but not necessarily through spitting. So it's a very hard thing to answer, but I want to say that uh, maybe it's time to get an evaluation from someone else. By the way, I'm Shannon, you wrote to me that a lot of people ask about whether or not I'm seeing kids and I'm happy to see kids. As soon as we get our site up and running, I'm happy to start seeing kids. It'll be spaced out because, uh, you know, my schedule is pretty hectic, but if you are in California, I'm happy to see you. If you're in other states, I'm licensed in like 10 or 11 states. So I'm kind of uh, can also do like a telehealth session with you and give you an idea of what's going on with your child. Absolutely. We got a bunch of people who are writing it about um, that stimming behavior that we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, what I'm seeing a lot lately, Dr. Grampiche, is that uh, you, you know that the field of ABA is in this spot right now where they're trying to embrace words yeah. like neurodiversity. They're trying yeah. to stop speaking in a way that's very being labeled ableist, um, but they're finding their way with it. And it's, and I see that it's just between that and parents are in a space where they're still trying to figure out what, what's going on with their kids. There's a lot of, uh, you know, um, yeah. so, um, I want to take just a second to talk about the fact that I believe that there is space to say, as you said, we all in, engage in st self-stimulatory behavior. Um, uh, so we can talk about it. We should stop stigmatizing it. And I yeah. think, unfortunately, though, parents whose children are newly diagnosed come in and they're like, 
that's the first thing we see as parents. We see, why is my kid doing that? It doesn't make any sense to me. My, you know, um, somebody has written in here about they have concerns their child's going to kindergarten and their child is engaged in so much verbal, you know, vocal stimulation that they think, think it's going to be a challenge for kindergarten. We look at that as parents and we go, that's the thing that we have to take care of. You guys come in as the behaviorists and you see that as part of a, a, a symptom of a whole bunch of other things. And you kind of tend to focus on the other things before that, because when you take care of the other things, some of that goes away mm-hmm, and true. you don't even have to, to deal with it. But it's hard as parents, because I think we all go, what are you going to do about that? And even the fact that this parent identifies it and says that his biggest concern is stimming, because I'm going to guess that if you ask the behavior team, they would say that is not the biggest concern with this child, that ability to communicate their needs, ability to self-regulate. Right. right. That's all part of the same bundle, Shannon. A lot of times the stimming is what holds back the communication. And that's kind of what I was trying to get to is that if the stimming is interfering, like right now I have a child I'm working with where his hyperactivity level and which is coupled with stimming is so high that it is very hard to get him to actually sit down, calm down and communicate. And when he does, when we slow him down, the communication pours out, right? Right. But it all is like covered by this self-stimulatory behavior. So I kind of understand where the, the family is coming from, that yeah. it's all part of the same thing. And that's why it's important. It's only if the stimming gets in the way, because sometimes the stimming doesn't get in the way. Yes. And, I, and I'm so glad that you brought that up. But for... but. So many people are writing in here and saying, uh, for instance, Brian says, our four and a half year old has advanced far as an update and hope for many. He started with early intervention, um, OT, PT, ABA, home and pre-K and speech, um, but uh, falls very short, short with social growth. And yes, verbal stimming and focus issues will make a five-year-old kindergarten a big challenge, any input. So, um, and other another person saying that when they went their OT, they were talking to their OT about self-stimulatory behavior and that the OT asked if the parent would feel better about the behavior if they knew what it was or what the antecedent was. And the parent was shocked saying, it's not about me, it's about my son. But I do see that this is a symptom of what's going on in the field is that, um, that, that a lot of people, Dr. Doreen, are... Uh, therapists are talking to the parents about, well, maybe it's about how you feel about the behavior. Can we make you feel better about it? Uh I understand what they're trying to get at, but they're missing what the parents are saying. Yeah. I totally agree with you. And that's a very important statement you just made, Shannon, is that there's such a strong belief that they know what's going on, that they're missing what the parent is saying. And that just disturbs me tremendously. Uh, we don't know. There's a lot of stuff we don't know about with autism. Uh, and it is not about how, you know, just for the parent who wrote about the OT, it's very, very likely that the OT doesn't know uh, the whole concept of ABA, which is you need to know the antecedent in order to modify it, in order to make the behavior go away. So I wouldn't blame the OT. OTs don't understand behavior. They don't understand how to change behavior. That's a very ABA type of thing, right? So, you know, possibly the OT is like, why is this parent trying to 
always ask me what the antecedent is. They don't even know. But that aside, um, the other issue with the four and a half year old going to school, I want to say yes. I mean, I want to talk to you about that because I think that parent also said that their child is going to have is uh, showing to have very high IQ or is is going to be um, twice exceptional classroom type thing. And I want to say that it is super important that you actually find the right placement. It's not just that stimming is a challenge because other, you know, clearly he's a brilliant child and he's doing extremely well. So that means that his stimming is not necessarily getting in the way of his progress, except for social behavior, which, by the way, there's a lot of stuff that can get in his way for social behavior. I don't know if it's just stimming. Um, most of the time when kids are that smart, uh, like twice exceptional, they just don't socialize the same way. They are bored with our level of intellect. And so it's very important for you to find a program that actually is appropriate for him, uh, which is you know, twice exceptional classroom, the kids are going to be very different than regular kindergarten. Like that kind of the activity that goes on, being cool in a regular inter, uh, kindergarten socially, uh, from a social perspective, being cool in a regular ed kindergarten is like someone who is just funny, maybe. Uh, being cool in a twice exceptional classroom is someone who, you know, can count backwards. So it's going to be a very different group of kids, and that's good. That's the place you want for him because, you know, a lot of times we're, like, all about social behavior. But I got to tell you guys, some of the people who have changed the world and continue to change the world in magnificent ways, uh, who have declared themselves to be on the spectrum, Elon Musk, great example, they do not have the most typical social behavior. And, and who cares that we need those people to, to move the world forward. And Shannon, I've said this in, you know, to you like 10 years ago, maybe so many years. I believe that there's a very, very strong reason for autism in our universe and that we are moving towards a different kind of communication and a different kind. I mean, look at, you know, just look at where we are now with communication. Our, you know, your son and my son are pretty similar in the way that they interact with their friends. What do they do? They gamer. They're gamers, right? So they go and they they don't even see anyone face to face. So the the need for eye contact is gradually gone, right? All, everybody socializes on these things. So on your phone. So it's like, okay, eye contact is a deficit in, in autism, but who cares anymore? Like, you know, most people don't have the opportunity to, and we're only 10 years into this. Like, imagine if it's 50 years from now, right? Where will social behavior be? And I feel that, I'm sorry, I'm going on a rant, but I just want people to kind of realize the, that it's different and we don't, always have to change things to uh, neurotypical. We have to change things to adaptive. We have to change things for our kids so that they thrive. That's it. That is it. You're not trying to reach normal. You're trying to reach 
a state for your child so that they're thriving in the society around them. Yeah. I wish we could just get rid of the word normal. And I love when people say it's just a setting on the dryer. Um, But he did write in some more information about how wonderful his child is, but that there, there is verbal stimming in the form of that he um, scripts and that he will say um, the name of a country over and over or words from an astronomy song. But um, he was very clear. It's not singing and that went not singing at all, just saying the words, um, he also wanted us to know that, uh, he loves the show, but he says ABA does not always have the answers and it's up to us to find the answers. Um, and, and I, I think, um, any, yeah. uh, that, you know, I, of course. yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I want to say that, so let's just answer that quickly because verbal stimming may cause some level of disturbance and if you have a team of behaviorists working with him that's the stuff they should be focusing on over this summer to get him ready is basically how to keep him from doing that and there are other ways that you can replace those sounds but or the repetition of the sounds but also the positive side of being amongst other children is that a lot of times our kids who are high-functioning and aware of other kids, uh, they start to experience embarrassment, which is part of the reason that our kids behave the way they do, right? They, they Fitting into social norms, a lot of times kids go to school and they see other kids and the kids are like, what is he doing? And they immediately stop doing that behavior because they care about the feedback from other kids. So it's not an all bad thing, but I, I always say I want my kids when they go to school to be highly successful. So they need to be prepared. And that should be the number one thing, school prep right now that you have some time. It's April, you have until September, I assume, or August. And so that's a few months that your whole team should be focused on classroom behavior, which, by the way, is useful for all of our kids because they're, it's very different, right? We don't blurt out answers. We do this, you know, there's all kinds of different behaviors that take place in classrooms. There we go. Um, and I just want to say too, cause we're talking about placement and, and, and where to go. And he asked if you would explain gate and gate clustering, but I also want to say too, that with the stimming kind of thing, this is not for everybody, but I know my child verbally stimmed so much that they were, there was no discussion about having him when he was three, they wanted him to go to preschool and there was nothing about him being included with typical kids. Nothing. They were like, that is not a possibility that that can never be because he couldn't hang no matter who he was with. Right. And then spring break happened. And one of the little boys that was in the little group that he was in, my son was two and a half at this point, his typical Yeah, I hate that word. But his neurotypical brother came because it was spring break and the mom had to bring him. And he came in and sat in the chair. And my son, for the first and only time, came in and sat in the chair next to him. The boy folded his hands in his lap. My son folded it. My son didn't stim once the entire hour. And I went, what just happened? Because he had only been around other kids who were uh, were stimming and it was making him stim because he couldn't handle that level of sensory. We had no idea before that moment. So yep. I just want to encourage everybody, think of your child as being your child, not my child, but see what environment they do the best in. Yes. Because for some of them, they need a certain amount of noise, like classical music in the background helps to focus them. That would have driven my son bonkers. 
Um, some of them need to be free to be able to do a certain amount of stemming, stemming and other kids, if they're around kids who aren't stimming, will stop stimming. So it's, it's different for everybody. Is that, am I in the right neighborhood? I think you're absolutely right, Shannon. That's very, very different. And I think also, I mean, of course, what complicates the situation is that there, you know, what's in the classroom, there's so many factors that are confounding each other, right? It, it's the teacher, it's the noise level, it's the other kids, which you really don't know much about until class starts. It's the level of difficulty, it's the distractions in the classroom. I mean, it's a million different things. And I, I saw someone else had also written about being terrified of introducing their child to class. And I just want to say, I don't be terrified. Just go into it and you can modify it and you can work on trying to, uh, like, you know, modify and get accommodations for your child. Accommodations are often very, very helpful where uh, the teacher will, for instance, give you access to what the homework is going to be ahead of time so that you can work on those things. I mean, there's a lot of different things that can be done uh, to make school successful. So uh, don't worry about that and don't let it uh, bother you or scare you. School is an important part of the whole transition and social life. Yeah. So, yeah, go for it. And, and that was Michelle who wrote in about that. And Michelle says that they don't allow ABA or one-on-one or one -on -one aides here. And, and Michelle, I just want to clarify um, what, uh, what country you're in. Because if you're in the United States, they can't say that to you. If you're in a different country, it's very possible that um, th that will be the case. But if you're in the United States, I just want to clarify that because there are schools who will say, well, we don't do one-on-one -on -one aids here. And that's just a lie. <laughs> There's a thing called <laughs> IDEA and, yeah, and they can't, they can't say that. The law says that if your child needs a one-on-one -on -one aid, then that's what your child gets. If you're someplace else, maybe, but not in the United States. Well, and even in the United States, as you know, Shannon, they can make it extremely difficult in some oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, so you need to go through the phases, which are, you know, call for an IEP, request it in your IEP. And this has to do with the least restrictive environment, because basically if your child doesn't have an aid, they might not do well, which means that they would be put in a more restrictive environment, which would be something like special ed. And we don't want that. You want your child to have the least restrictive environment. That means the school needs to provide an aid in order to actually, uh, for your child to succeed. And your child, I mean, the school is obligated in the U.S., at least districts, and this is, as Ch uh, Shannon said, part of the IDEA, and they need to provide all the resources uh, to help make your child as uh, successful as possible. There we go. Sarah wrote in and said, hi, Dr. Doreen. My twins will be three years old in June. They recently got their VB map assessment done and they are on level two incomplete and some splinter skills complete in level three, for exa examples, reading and math. Uh, she goes on to say also tacting is complete of level three. Our BCBA warned us that some kids get stuck at level two. Is that true? And what can we do now to avoid avoid getting stuck. God. <laughs> like, why are, 
I mean, it's just so different for me now. Like, you know, this is not how I trained hundreds of BCBAs at CARD. I never, I, it's just, you don't give up. You don't stop. You modify the way you're teaching. Um, right. She so is I, not in the United States. I know that for a fact. Okay. Um, okay. So that, yeah, that might be a little bit of an issue there. So no, I, I would say, Sarah, that Yes, of course, kids get stuck at different levels, just like neurotypical kids get stuck at different levels. Like there are some kids who are great at math. There are other kids who are fantastic at literature and hate math or can't get math. So our brains function in a way where some things are we're stronger, some things are weaker. So I, you know, that means nothing. Uh, that basically means that you just keep uh, working at it, you make it easier, you teach in a different way, you modify the instructional uh, the parts, you, you make things more visual, you slow them down, you maybe go back and increase some of the prerequisite skills, uh, you know, you do various types of rewarding games so that the child can memorize better. I mean, there's like a million things you do. But you don't just give up on a particular skill level. You just don't because all of these skill levels kind of build on top of each other and they are necessary. Now, I, you know, the VB map is great. Uh, I don't, it's not comprehensive enough for me. It doesn't teach all the different uh, areas of skill. It, and so, and I, I don't know if, yeah, actually, I, I do. I think the skills, um, um program or platform is accessible again so i would say that perhaps you could just go online and look at skills for autism which is the curriculum that i wrote many years ago i and, and friends of mine colleagues of mine at card we wrote together many years ago and i would really take a look at that because um it is important to uh, very there the VB map doesn't necessarily break down the skills in my opinion enough for you to be able to see where you're stuck um, what smaller skills need to be taught to help you go forward uh, let me know Sarah get online and see if you can access skills because it was offline for a long time I'm hoping that it's online again and that that will help you move forward with a lot of the more detailed skills that will help your child ultimately master level three of the VB map as well. Wonderful. Lynn wants to know, would AIT help with verbal stimming? She has a 20 year old who still stims verbally. Um, and, and I, and I just want to clarify because you had said earlier, we all stim and I think we all stim verbally. It's just the level to which and what it's preventing doing, but I'm, I'm guessing, I'm assuming that it's pretty intense if she's bringing it up here. Yeah. So auditory integration training, AIT, um, could help, it could also hurt. I just wanna like realistically tell you my experience with AIT. So back in, I don't even know, the 90s, I guess, maybe, um, AIT was a very hot topic and a lot of people were trying auditory integration training and I'll talk about it very quickly here. It is modulated music. So basically it's music, just, you know, I remember in those days it was like Barry Manilow and it was 
modulated. So various frequencies of sound are taken out and others are enhanced. So it kind of sounds like like that, right? And um, what the way the, the, the theory of AIT, and there were two types, there's Tomatis and there's Berard, and, and they have, they're on different schedules, but they basically do the same thing. The theory of it is that you would do an audiogram with the child and the audiogram, which is a hear, kind of a very detailed um, hearing test. And it would tell you what frequencies of sound your child is unable to hear. In other words, there are hair cells in the inner ear which are not responding to sound and <clears throat> specific frequencies of sound. Now, without, with typically developing people, those inner uh, hair cells of the inner ear respond to sound. They vibrate against parts of the inner ear and they call, that's how you hear sound. So if those hair cells are not responding to certain frequencies, the idea is that we want to activate them and we want to make them active. And we do that, or people believed that it would be done through AIT, uh, which is a series of like, if I remember correctly now, I don't remember, but Berard had like, I think one or two rounds of, I want to say eight sessions. Tomatis had three rounds and it was like, 15 sessions, 10 sessions, it was something like that. And basically you'd go through and your child would be put, they would first do the audiogram, which would identify which specific frequencies apply to your child. And unfortunately with a lot of our kids, it's impossible to determine that because they don't have this, the ability to tell you. So therefore they had developed like a standard autism audiogram, which I didn't like that. But anyway, that would then give you certain modulated sounds and you, they'd put headphones on your uh, uh, child and your child would just sit there and listen to this music. And that would happen at whatever schedule they wanted. And then afterwards, the results should have been that it would accelerate language because now the child is hearing certain things and possibly reduce some verbal self-symmetry behaviors. I will say that I saw that it helped slightly in accelerating language for some kids because they did start to hear more, uh, you know, kind of like balanced. Uh, but in some cases, it actually increased <clears throat> self-stimulatory, verbal self-stimulatory behavior. And I wonder if that was because it just kind of backfired. The, the frequencies that were given to particular children were not the appropriate frequencies. Um, and therefore, the child now started to self-stimulate a little bit more. I, if it was my child, I don't know that I would risk that. So I, I would always still want to figure out how I can kind of help the child control the sounds. You know, there's a lot of behavioral things. You can have various time frames where the child is allowed to do various sounds at home. Let's say singing is one way that the child can actually get out all their needs for that sort of thing. Absolutely. Uh, Renee and Elvira say, my son starts to run around nonstop with vocal stimming in Costco. I don't know what it is, if it's the bright lights or noises. And if I hold his hands, he gets angry. It only happens in Costco, not other stores. I've tried noise canceling headphones and sunglasses, but I haven't figured it out. Yeah, good job. I mean, you're working on figuring it out. It's something that is stimulating him in that store. 
And I would also start with sound and visual um, to determine which one it is. It could, you know, Costco has like extremely high ceilings. It could be uh, the echo sound that we don't hear, but somehow he does. Keep trying those things. I would probably uh, bank on it being some sort of sound stimulation. I, you know, I, I also think that, uh, in Costco, some of them have those fans that are below the lights. So there's almost a strobe effect Yeah, um, that sometimes yeah. happens. And, and I know I've talked about it many times before that my son used to have a tantrum only in one store in one part of the store every time. And I, for the life of me, couldn't figure out what it was until I told our team and they had somebody come and just shadow us and watch us go through the store so that they could look at it from someplace else. And, and what they discovered was the place where he was having the tantrum. There was a, they, it was a, uh, one of those concrete floors that was the glazed concrete. Oh yeah. And, and, and that part would stop and it would go to a tile thing mm-hmm. and that he was reacting to the tile. Visually, he thought he was going to fall through the things. He can tell us that now but he couldn't tell it. So he would throw, he turned over a shopping cart once um, right there, but I would never have seen it. I always encourage people bring someone with you. If you have a team, make them come with you to look at it. But if, if you can't have a friend come, have them videotape so that you can see what else is happening when he has the, the thing. Yeah. Uh, My advice. Uh, people are writing so important that thank you for reminding me of that Shannon it's so important to remind ourselves of that because you know you'd never think that a tantrum has something to do with just the visual pattern on the floor I mean absolutely you have to think outside the box when it comes to our kids and in order to figure out how they're receiving the world how they're perceiving things and a lot of people have written it and said that Costco, that their kids have reactions in Costco too. And we love Costco, but there are different sensory things in Costco than many other stores. I got to get to this question before we run out of time. We, uh, they wrote in and said, we need assistance in getting our son ABA therapy. Our insurance covers it, but the deductible and the out-of-pocket quotes make the weekly fees exorbitant. Is there an advocate we can engage to assist us in getting these costs reduced because because our income or a grant we can apply for, for um, to assist. He is 11. We have been doing biomedical, but the school he attends believes it will assist him in his academics. Uh, it, it is the best school we have been to, and he does have trouble communicating still. He is fine for me at home. He understands my directions and even um, can do some home uh, tasks at home without direction. He self-directs. At school, it's another matter. They tell me he's not a behaviorist at all, just having trouble with verbal communication piece. Any assistance or guidance in tackling this hurdle? So a couple of different things there, but first starting with the insurance and the deductible and the out-of-pocket. Yeah, so I would, uh, you know, there's not much you can do with insurance out-of-pocket. I would recommend that you... uh, apply to get a grant from my foundation, which is ACT, Autism Care Today. And you can go online and apply there. I do definitely uh, um, give grants up to $5,000 to individuals for co-pays. 
And I really, really want to help you with this because that's one of my big things is that if I can pay, give you $5,000 or give your provider $5,000 towards your co-pays, and hopefully that helps you hit your out-of-pocket maximum, then you start getting more, uh, you know, 100% paid for the year. Uh, so that's what I would like to do for you. Please write in to ACT today. I think you can get on the website and there it is. Thank you, Trayvon and apply and if you can't get through that way just uh let shannon know your information and we will help you with that so there that's you go. wonderful uh sajal just wrote in and said hi i'm from india also want to say that we have holland in the house anada said she's from holland but saja says they they're using skills have been using skills uh for a long time just wanted to know what does a typical day in a 25 to 40 hour ABA look like for a verbal child, level three VB, VB map, five years of age? That's a okay. ginormous question. Yeah, so it's going to be, this is, I, I'm just going to tell you the typical kind of uh, ABA schedule. And, and I think they said 30 hours a week. Did they say the total number of hours? Shana? They said 25 to 40. 25. Yeah. Well, so, you know, if you're 25 hours a week, we're looking at five hours a day or so, probably it's a five-year-old. So they're probably, and depending on where you are in the world, they're starting school soon. And if they start school, then you want to try to spread the hours over seven days because you definitely want to capture the weekend and not let the child uh, have nothing to do on the weekend. The weekend is very, very important because I uh, generally, I suggest that the weekends be split up so that every day, Saturday and Sunday, um, or whatever weekend you may have, depending on where you are in the world, uh, you spend half of the day kind of doing social activity with the family and half of the day doing ABA. So that would give you the ability to, let's say, uh, do at least four hours on each of ABA on each day of the weekend. So that's about eight hours right there. And then the rest of the hours, let's say you're doing a total of, I don't know, 30 and you have like now 22 hours left, you divide it amongst the rest of the five days and you are Hopefully, if you're still out of school, you would be doing you would be doing that kind of in two hour blocks as a five year old. So you would be doing this in two hour blocks throughout the day. Um, if it's a child who's already in school, it becomes a little bit harder, and you want to like try to fill his afternoon and evening, right? And the ses so the sessions are generally I don't like to have sessions that are longer than two hours. I like to, I will do up to four hour sessions depending on the child, because sometimes either the activity is very long or like for instance, when it's a high, let's say we're, we're looking at a nine year old and we're teaching social skills. So all we're focused on is having uh, play dates. Then the activity is probably gonna be more like four hours because we wanna have interaction with other kids who come over, et cetera. But, a two hour session during, so you'll have, let's say multiple two hour sessions, right? With different people, hopefully. So you can have one therapist from, let's say, you know, I don't know, 10 to 12, then the child has a break. 
for an hour and then you'll have another session from one to three and then the child has a break and then you have another session, that kind of thing. But I don't think you should be doing more than about six hours a day. That's a lot already. So, you know, spread it out. But inside the two hour session, there's basically a ton of breaks. And the way that it works is that you would do within a two hour session, you'd probably be depends on the child again, you'd probably be working on somewhere between 10 and 15 different lessons. And each lesson you'll do in segments. So you'll do, let's say, uh, two to three minutes of a particular lesson, and then a minute of something rewarding like play or uh, just free time. Then you do another, let's say, three minutes of perhaps the same lesson so that you get a few repetitions of each lesson and then you will move on to a different lesson and you want to alternate the lessons because some lessons our kids are going to be better at so they'll get more reward you want to alternate the lessons because you don't want the child sitting at all times so some lessons require the child to get up and move around so that helps break things up uh, the reason that you want multiple people doing this stuff is because it helps the child generalize so that they're not just behaving really well with one child, they're responding to multiple, with one therapist, they're responding to multiple people. Uh, and then of course there's, you also are breaking down your lessons. Some of them are brand new lessons that are active and you're working on them. Some of them are maintenance. So lessons that have already been learned, but we're just kind of checking in to make sure they're maintained. And then some lessons are in generalization mode, that means, They've been learned in the sit down type of modality, but now you're moving around the house, moving around the school, moving around community, and you're trying to make sure this particular skill is, is still uh, functional in, in outside of the sit down one-to-one -one environment. So you're generalizing to real life. So there's a lot that goes into it, but it's like, just make sure that it's not r rote and repetitious. Um, there's gotta be a ton of reinforcement and like fun activities for the child and in order to remain engaged. There we go. We've only got a minute and a half left and I have so much to cover, but I do wanna address, Dark Angel wrote back in and said, my son is pushing other kids. He's at a specialized preschool and they've reduced his attendance to just one hour. And they say, I'm not motivated to take him. Am I wrong? And she goes on to say he's four and he really wants to play with the other kids, but doesn't know how to. Yeah. And that's probably why he's pushing them because they haven't taken the time to figure that out at school and to teach him to initiate play instead of pushing them. He's trying to get their attention that way. If you have a, it's not about, I mean, I don't know what the resources of the school are, but this is the kind of thing that I would teach at home first, which is how to get attention appropriately, which might be tapping on the shoulder instead of pushing or tapping. But then the, the issue becomes once he's tapped on the shoulder, what then, right? So the child needs to have play skills that are already mastered at home. Uh, and they should be appropriate play skills. Like if he's on the playground normally, then you want to, you don't want to be teaching like board games. You want to be teaching things like Foursquare or whatever it is that kids play on the playground nowadays. So you would specifically focus on teaching those things at home 
including how to get attention appropriately, but also skills, the, the playing with other kids skills, um, which include everything from knowing how to play a game, but also, you know, joining a team of a group of friends and saying, can we play? There's a lot. Uh, again, I saw that uh, Amanda was kind enough to check and tell us that skills is online. And in yes. skills, there's a huge play curriculum. Um, and I just need to, you know, write a book about this stuff because there's yes. so much. It comes up so often that parents want to know these particular lessons. Absolutely. So, you know, I would, I would focus on teaching those things at home. Amanda, I do want to tell you that I know you asked the question last week and I wasn't able to answer it. I'm today, later today, going to do a video or a couple of videos to answer your questions on my TikTok. So ask Dr. Doreen on TikTok and I will uh, address your particular questions that you asked. And they had a lot to do with conversational skills. There we go. We're out of time and we're out of way past out of time. Uh, but I want to thank Dr. Grampiche and all of you. And there was so much going on in the chat. And I love when you guys connect with each other. I see Amanda and Brian that you're having a, a very intense conversation about all the good stuff. I just love it. Um, I, I hope that you guys continue to do that because we, we want you to connect with other people as well. Um, I do want to say though, Shannon, yeah, could I yeah. also just throw in that Brian, I, I love talking about the gut brain connection and if you're around next week, we'll do that. Like come back in and we'll talk more about how the food that we eat breaks down and affects our brain. Yeah, it's it's a big topic. Um, but I don't I don't want to leave without reminding all of you that on tomorrow's show, it's so huge, you guys. We're having Eustacia Cutler on. Do you know mm. who that is? That is Temple, Dr. Temple Grandin's mother. If you've ever wondered, you know, how did this woman in a time when nobody else was doing what she was doing, how did she know how to do that? How, you know, if you have questions for her, cause I always do, she's so lovely. She's a national treasure. She's with us tomorrow live. And so I want you to be thinking and writing in your questions. She loves to hear from you guys. So that's Eustacia Cutler tomorrow. Then on Thursday's show, we've got two amazing guests. One of them who's got a new book out about music and autism and how there's a, a connection that people have been missing. Really excited about that. And then we're welcoming back a wonderful self-advocate, um, a female self-advocate who is going to talk about some of the challenges that she's been facing with dating. Um, so absolutely very excited about that. Plus some in the news stories. So a lot going on this week. And I don't want you guys to forget that before the end of the month, we are going to launch our maiden version of our new podcast. That's called stories from the spectrum. It is all content by and for a neurodiverse world. So all of the content is given to us and we, we've, we've fostered some of it. Um, it's all uh, work that has paid work that people on the spectrum have done. That's their voice. It's a, a beautiful, I, I can't even believe the, I can't wait to show these videos to Dr. Grampiche. I'm so excited about it. I could split into 32 people, but that story <laughs> from the spectrum. It's, it's, uh, we're going to launch the first one before the end of the month. I don't have an actual date for you yet, but be watching for it. You guys, I, I think it's going to be huge. So all of that and more, and don't forget that on Monday we're live. We're having Dr. Temple Grandin herself on Monday. And then sometime soon we're, we're welcoming back Kobe Bird 
from uh, Netflix's Lock and Key. And he he has a ginormous announcement, you guys. I'm so excited about so many things. I, I don't know how to contain myself. But I adore all of you. I adore Dr. Grampuche. Thank you for being here with us and being together. We hold hands. We get through it together, right? Si se puede. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with Eustacia Cutler. Until then, uh, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>